Thanks for listening to the Grace First podcast. If you want to know more about us, head on over to gracefirst.church. Or if you're in the Wichita area, come visit us Sundays at 1015. Well, as humans, we honor those who have made great achievements. These accomplishments can be anything from the arts to sports to major donations and heroic service, just to name a few. The Nobel Prize is given to those who have made significant improvement in life for the benefit of humanity. The Hall of Fame exists for sports, of of most sports, to memorialize the athletic accomplishments of those who set athletic records in history. And the Wall of Fame exists in most organizations to commemorate the major figures and uh, courses that changed their history. I remember my freshman year in high school in 1996, our school district decided to build a new $10 million stadium. And I remember they advertised for donations uh, before they began the project. And if you were a major donor, you could have your name and your family name engraved in a brick and that brick would become part of the wall and it would be memorialized forever or as long as the field stood. This was the wall of fame for major donors. When the field was completed a couple of years later, it was a big deal. And we had this grand opening of the new field and we played our first game my junior year on that field. And I still remember walking down the stairs to the field in full pads as a crowd cheered on and everyone had big expectations that we're gonna kick off this field with a big win. And that night, we got crushed 54 to zero. (laughs) Now, I don't think our team lived up to the donors' expectations that night, but the field certainly did. Even the Oakland Raiders came and trained there during the preseason at times, and it was a beautiful field, and it still is even today. The wall of fame of the big donors even still stands today. From heroes, to athletes, to donors. We honor those who have made significant accomplishments in life. And this is true even for the heroes of the Christian faith. When we walk down the halls of heaven and we see the wall of fame for those who made significant contributions for the kingdom, I have no doubt that we will see great and humble figures, men and women in the history of faith, Many who appear in the wall of martyrs, in the voice of the martyrs headquarters in Oklahoma, people like Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, the reformers, the apostles, and the thousands of believers who gave their all. But there is one woman in particular who made the wall of fame in church history because of her generous contribution to the kingdom. She was, if you will, a major donor. She made the wall of fame of the faith, but not according to the conventions which you and I have come to understand. No, she'll forever be memorialized in church history, not because of the quantity of her giving, but because of the quality of her giving. We come to our passage this morning in Mark, where we see a story of a widow who gave all to the kingdom. The big idea that I want you to walk away from our sermon this morning is that the Lord delights in our sacrificial giving when we give generously from the heart. Through her story, 
we will see some important principles on generous and sacrificial giving. So we're back in, we are back in the Gospel of Mark this morning as we continue our series in Mark after having taken a short break during the Advent season. So if you will, turn with me to Mark chapter 12. I like to walk along the passage a little bit, so if you like to follow along, there are a few uh, pew Bibles in front of you. You can turn on your Bible app and follow along. Back to Mark chapter 12. Here in 12, we're in Jesus' last week of his earthly ministry that is leading to his crucifixion. Jesus taught in the temple during the day because the temple is his domain. He is the son of God. And he retreated to Bethany in the evenings, likely staying with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now the Sanhedrin, if you remember, which was a Jewish buffer organization between Rome and Israel, was composed of 71 members of the chief priests, ruling elders, and scribes. These were the religious rulers of Israel. And they have been trying to trap Jesus through their tricky questions, like the questions on uh, tax and text questions on the resurrection, to try to kill Jesus. So I want you to see what Jesus had to say about these religious rulers, particularly the scribes. So look at me in verse 38 with me. He said, as he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. These are the scribes. They're the hypocrites who seek honor and respect of man while devouring widows' houses. So the natural reading of this text will make us, make our, uh, as as a modern audience, naturally question, well, how did they devour widows? And what happened to these widows? Well, unlike the Sadducees, the scribes were not as wealthy. And they were largely dependent on charitable donations from worshipers and visitors. There are records of even certain scribes who persuaded rich widows to make major contributions to the temple, and then they embezzled the money for themselves. There was one victim uh, who was uh, named Fulvia, and her story became famous in Rome, even in the Roman government. And so Mark's audience, who were mostly Gentile in the Roman Empire, likely all knew about this event and knew exactly what Jesus meant when Jesus said, uh, they devour widows' houses. So then what happened to these widows? Well, we're about to see one of these widows in the temple as Jesus is watching. So join me in verse 41. I'm going to read through the whole passage here, 41 through 44 this morning. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. 
So here we see a drastic contrast between the scribes and the uh, scribes who, honor the, uh, who seek the honor of man and this widow who is seeking the honor of God. The first thing I want you to notice about this passage is that Jesus in verse 41 is watching the crowd put in their money into the treasury. And he can see right through their hearts as this story unfolds. So here's the first applicational truth that I want you to walk away. If you're following your outline, this is your first point. Is that God sees your giving and knows the intent of your heart. God sees your giving and knows your intent. So you can fool others. You can even fool yourself, but you can't fool God. God sees and knows every intent of your heart. When we give or not give, or when we make excuses to not give, or when we dabble in sin, God cannot be fooled. Now I share this not to guilt trip you into giving to the church, but to let you know that we worship an omniscient God who knows all things. He knows the beginning, the end, the number of hairs on your head. He knows the number of sand, the number of stars. He even knows your thoughts and the intent of your heart. And it is because a God like this exists that moral judgments we make, what is morally right and morally wrong, all make sense. Jesus is the final judge who bears that moral standard of all that is good and holy. And it is by that standard which everyone will be judged before him as God's image bearers. He alone knows every deed and the intent of every heart so that he can fairly judge every soul with perfect justice. Hear the word of the Lord from Jeremiah 17, 10. It says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I examine the mind to reward a man according to his way by what his deeds deserve. See, he is God who sees all and he knows all. And he knows the intent of our giving. Now, if you're a new Christian or you do not give regularly, hear me well. I'm not strong arming you with verse 41 and saying that you better start giving because Jesus is watching. Like the funny bumper sticker you may have seen that says uh, of, of Jesus saying that, hey, I saw that. But I want you to hear why generous financial giving is an important aspect of Christian discipleship. So let's continue. Generous giving is part of Christian discipleship because your giving is an integral function of God's economy. Your, your giving is an important part of God's economy. Three times in this passage, the word treasury or offering box is mentioned. And this is the same word in the Greek. And this points to how God's economy worked. These are the offering boxes around the temple. And this one in particular is inside the court of the women, that is uh, in, even inside the court of the Gentiles. And all contributions of this went to the work of the temple. See, the way God commanded the Israelites to function was for uh, the tribe of Levites to be the priests and to handle all the priestly duties, including that of the temple. If you remember from the conquest of Joshua, the tribe of Levi was the only tribe that did not and could not possess any land, while all the other tribes were given land. 
Joshua 18.7, we read, The Levites, however, have no portion among you because their inheritance is a priesthood of the Lord. So the Levites were responsible for conducting the temple ministry. And in ancient Israel, God's provision to the Levites came through the contribution of the other tribes. We call this tithe, which is a giving of tenth of what God has provided through our earning. But if you read through all the laws on giving in the Old Testament, like the passage that I read earlier, you'll find that the Israelites actually give more like 15 to 20% of all their income because of the multiple offerings throughout the year of the various feasts and festivals. And this is partly why, or this is partly how we see God's economy displayed in the Old Testament. Now in the New Testament, the model is similar but the numbers and the percentage is not as clearly defined. Instead, the principle of giving in the New Testament is to be generous, to be cheerful, and for us to give wisely as good stewards of his resources. And by doing so, we're contributing to the work of God, of carrying out the Great Commission, as we care for other believers. Even today, there are wonderful parachurch ministries and mission organizations that need our support. But the primary means which God has purposed to accomplish his work is through the local church. And so when we prioritize our giving, the local church where you belong and are committed as a member should receive the priority in your contribution. We see the early church also caring for the needs of other local churches throughout the New Testament. In Acts 2.44, we read of the result that all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give anyone who had need. We also see Paul uh, collecting money for the church in Jerusalem as he wrote in Romans 15. says, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owe it to them. He also urged the church in Corinth to give generously throughout his letters. Why? Well, because when believers were in need, it was the church that met their need through their generous giving. And because we have a communion with saints in Christ, it is our responsibility to care for our brothers and sisters in the family of God. When a family member comes to you and asks you for something and they're in need of something, how do you respond? See, I think most of us want to help because you're part of the family and you feel the responsibility to care for that family member. Some of my children have been endowed with the superpower of being able to hear food. And not just smell it, but also hear it. And when I'm down to my last bite of my favorite drumstick or a Krispy Kreme donut, they appear out of nowhere. And usually two or three mouths are in front of me, and they're asking for a bite. And if I have one bite left and three mouths in front of me, I'm faced with an economic crisis. And a big part of me says, here you go to the first child. But the union supervisory part of me 
says that this is going to result in tears and complaints and grievance forms. So typically, I'll usually give in three bites, little bites, or if it's just one of them, I'll give it to her uh, completely. Now, since they're my children, I share with them even my last bite. And I don't see that as a sacrificial act because they're my family. We're more inclined to be sacrificially generous with our family. We don't even think about giving in this way to our loved ones because this is what we do as family members. And the awareness of this responsibility strengthens our conviction to support other families. This is no different in the family of Christ. When there are struggling believers in need of help in our church body or are sent missionaries around the world who feel we must feel the weight of our responsibility to help them. Did you know that part of your giving goes to our missionary Ryan McCart, who is running an orphanage and ministering to these orphans in Juarez, Mexico? Did you know that part of your giving is going to a a missions work of a medical team that's going to Dominican Republic in a few weeks and the many ministries around uh, the translation ministries like the Hawthorns that are taking place around the world? Did you know that your finances are being given to ministries in the Middle East to proclaim the gospel and to help people plant churches like George Adu and his family in Ghana? This is partly why we conduct missionary spotlights regularly so that we can see as a local church family that we are involved in participating in God's work through our contributions. And we are fulfilling the great commission as a local church. Now, God is certainly not limited by our resources. He can pull money from fish and he can turn water into wine But you and I, we get the privilege to participate in his work through our giving. And God uses our giving to accomplish his work around the world. Giving regularly of your finances and of your service at your local church is to participate in God's work. And when you belong to Grace First or other churches as a member, you get to participate in how that money is spent to care for the poor, to support new missionaries, to bring on new pastors, and much more to proclaim the gospel. So as we consider these aspects of participating in God's economy, let me first encourage you, if generous giving, financial giving, has not been a regular part of your walk with God, I encourage you to begin this year. My first tithing check was in college my freshman year, And the check was for $20 because my ROTC scholarship gave me $200 of scholarship. uh, It was a stipend that gave regularly. My goal has been trying to increase the percentage of my giving as I get older to eventually 15 to 20% like the Jews in ancient Israel. But what I have seen is that even through my giving, even through the little giving that I give to God, that God has faithfully provided all that I needed to serve him. And it has been a privilege to give back a a small portion of what he has given me so that I, I can engage in the work of God through my local church. As I said, in the New Testament, you will not find a percentage or a number, but your giving to the local church 
around 10% of your income is a good place to start if you're a new giver. You won't find the number, but it's a good place to begin of discipleship as a follower of Christ. Whether it's 10% of your net or your gross income, I will leave that up to you and God. Giving to the local church is an integral function of God's economy, and it's a means for us to participate in the work of God. The third point I want to explore with you is that giving is a tangible expression of trusting in God's provision. Giving, in some way, is an exercise of faith. Jesus, in verse 44, who knows this widow's heart better than she does, declared that she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Here Mark tells us what she put in was the smallest denomination of coins in those days. And what she put in was worth about one-sixty-fourth of a day's work. It was one-sixty-fourth of a denarius. So in today's terms, if you're making about $130 a day, it's about $2. It's maybe enough for a, a small burger from the dollar menu at McDonald's. So what she put in even then was barely enough to purchase a meager meal. Now what would cause anyone to put into the temple treasury all that she had. Jesus didn't say that she was out of her mind or that she had more money stashed away in the back. The only explanation here is that she trusted in God's provision by giving to God. And this is why Jesus was so amazed by her giving, because she fully trusted in God to provide for all of her needs. She gave what little she had to the Lord as Jesus stated that this, all she had to live on. The widow's sacrificial giving was an expression of her faith as she trusted God to provide her next meal, her next lodging, and all that she would need in life to live. So Jesus used this woman uh, as an as a object lesson for the disciples because here was a woman who was living out what Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, which was, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. There are several ways to express our faith in Christ. Prayer, Bible study, corporate worship, church membership, and church service are just some ways we demonstrate our faith. But the one that I think receives the least amount of tension is our giving. You may have heard the famous idiom, put your money where your mouth is, which means to show by your action, not just by your words, that you believe in something seriously. Well, I say, put your money where your faith is. Do you truly believe what Jesus said in Matthew 6.33 is true? Do you really believe that if you're serious about God's business, that God will take care of your business? And do you believe that if you express your faith through your generous giving for kingdom work, that God will provide for all your needs? His promise to his children that he will provide for all these things and in, in the things that we need in life is an irrevocable promise from the Heavenly Father. And you can count on God to fulfill that promise on his end. 
Everything that you have and own and everything that you earn is from the Lord. Your business and your employer all exist and are able to provide you the wages and benefits because Christ the King has permitted them to do so and to provide for you. And they are all in the hands of the sovereign king. Psalm 24, 1 tells us that the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. And our Lord has called on us as his children who daily receive the blessings from his hands to give cheerfully and generously for the work of his kingdom by giving a small fraction of our blessings back to him. Our giving is a tangible expression of trusting in his provision. The final principle of giving we see in this passage is that God cares more about the quality of our giving over quantity. In verse 43, we see Jesus emphasizing the importance of this principle in his teaching through the phrase, truly I tell you. Whenever you see Jesus saying that in the Bible, it's a call to attention. It's his way of saying, listen up, or don't miss this. And the lesson he wants his disciples to learn, including us, is that God cares more about the quality of our giving over quantity. You see, this widow through our eyes was described as having less. But in God's eyes, she ironically gave more than even those who are giving much. Now, Jesus doesn't condemn the others who are giving much, but the one who is singled out to be marked as one who is worthy of being memorialized is this widow who only gave a few bucks. For Jesus, the value of our giving is not based on the amount, but on the cost to the giver. Our Lord delights in our giving when we give sacrificially and generously. For this widow, she gave sacrificially all that she had for the kingdom cause. For that, she will forever be memorialized and remembered in the hall of fame of church history for her generous giving. As a father, I've watched my children share their limited resources with one another. And when I see them sharing generously out of the, the goodness and the kindness of their heart, you know what's amazing about seeing that? It makes me want to give them even more. When my Vivian shares her ice cream with little Tessa because she was spinning it around and she dropped, she dropped it on the ground, or when Annabelle loses her balloon into the air and she cries and gives her balloon to Annabelle, it makes me want to give Vivian the whole box of ice cream and a whole new box of balloons. Have you ever felt that? When you watch someone share their gifts selflessly with others, doesn't it make you want to give them more because they were generous? In my observation, based on the patterns of what God has done in the Bible and in life, God is generous with those who are generous with others. The Lord delights in our sacrificial giving when we give generously from the heart. And I believe that God desires to give more to those who give generously out of the selflessness of their hearts. Now let me qualify that 
by saying that God does not guarantee material blessings or worldly success all based on how much you give. This is not an equation. But if Christ is your Lord and you are his child, then he will give you everything you need for you to live a life that will honor him. When we trust in our generous provider for our provision, we become givers of God's resources on his behalf. Generosity is not an equation to be followed, but a way of life that flows from the heart. As followers of Christ, we have the supreme example of generosity, don't we? We have the example of the one who demonstrated generosity for us. See, on that cross on Calvary's hill, where our Lord Jesus was crucified, the greatest act of sacrifice was made for us. He paid for the price of sin with his own blood, that we may be forgiven by faith and be given a new life to live for his glory, a life of holiness and a life of sacrifice. He gave it all so that we may receive the eternal inheritance in Christ and be a conduit of his blessings in this world. The hymn writer who wrote, Jesus paid it all, wonderfully captured this truth as we sang, for nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. The widow gave all that she had to God. And this is what we are to do with our lives. We are to give all of ourselves to the service of our Savior. This is the Christian life. That we follow the one who paid it all for us. And we live to represent him in every way. In the way we love him. In the way we love one another. And in the way we give and share our resources for a kingdom cause. He shared, he has shared his kingdom riches with us by making us co-heirs to his throne and his glory forever. So may we share the riches of his blessings in our lives as generous givers of God's riches on his behalf. For our Lord delights in our sacrificial giving when we give generously from our heart. May we be a generous people who give sacrificially because he has paid it all for us that we may be called children of God.